Jamie didn't want to record us talking about being able to poop in our toilet again. I don't. I didn't know we were going to talk about poop. I mean, I kind of knew, but like I should have known. But like, <laughs> I didn't actively know that you were going to talk about a toilet problem that actually we don't have. But it's funny. <laughs> We've been pooping in the yard. Oh, God. It's been amazing. Sometimes no. we remember to bury it. <laughs> it's okay. We have a lot of animals in the neighborhood, a lot of rats and skunks. And... So that they're pooping, too. Oh. We're, we're pooping in solidarity. A group pooping party. <laughs> the old poop party? Yeah. I think that's something else. Oh. <laughs> Anyways, welcome to our show. <laughs> Hello, fantasy fans, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Molkel. My pronouns are he and him, and I am here with my blighted co-hosts. Oh, shit. You know, my name is Cassidy. My pronouns are they, them, and I'm a motherfucking centaur. You don't see enough of us in this world. Agreed. But it's because we're underrepresented in the media. That makes sense. I feel like centaur are basically underrepresented in all media. Yeah, it's true. They just want to keep us down. They don't want us to see other people like us. You're like, hey, are there any good roles for centaurs? And they're like, nay. <laughs> Which is super <laughs> offensive. But then we see people in centaur costumes. It's offensive. But who gets to be the tail? They should hire real centaurs to play centaurs on screen. I agree. Yeah. And I also expand that sentiment to all marginalized communities. Of course. Of course. A horse is a horse. Of course, of course. <laughs> Thank you. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and I'm Jack Olander. My pronouns are any and all. Yay. And, uh... I am a citizen of this great walled city, Faldara. Faldara, who can, f uh, who is finally going to be able to utilize the one source. Oh. I've been able to mildly use the source for years, and now that the city's under attack, there's an invitation for anyone who can use it. I'm pretty excited. I think this is going to go really well hype, for me. Hype. Yeah, I'm sure that absolutely nothing is going to go wrong and that your eyes are definitely not going to burn out of your skull. Yeah, it's funny you say that, actually, because they the invitation says it's a barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that makes sense, actually. They're going to feed you while you work. Yeah, I'm just so happy deal. to finally be recognized. Meals come with the job. Sounds pretty good. Yeah. I hope so. A lot of representation this week, guys. Yeah. Certainly none of it's cursed or anything. Nope. Not even a little bit. Well, guys, here we are. We've been through quite a journey with the Wheel of Time, and we are getting ready to discuss, at last, Episode 8, The Eye of the World, the ultimate episode of Season 1. Not the penultimate one, which we covered Three weeks ago, actually, because we ended up doing an extra movie last month. But here we are, talking about 
the eye of the world. How could we not do House Moving Castle, you ask? I, I didn't a, ask that. It was impossible. That's why I didn't ask it. Okay. And you finally got that answer you've been waiting on. <laughs> or not waiting on. <laughs> but we can't really talk about what happened in this episode until we've summarized it for you. So we get to see the dragon from 3,000 years ago. And what a dragon. Wait a minute. This guy looks like a human. (laughs) His name is Luz Thera. Luz Luz Therim. That sounds right. Or Luz Therin. I I, I couldn't keep track. Listen, at least it's not like brand. (laughs) (laughs) Or rand. (laughs) Fighting the dark one at the eye of the world. He's going to lose there. And <laughs> I'm just glad that it's not a name that sounds nearly identical to another name of a character we already know. Yeah, you're right. I don't want any brands. I don't want any Pats. Grams. Or Grams. Or uh, Tam. McGuane's. <laughs> Fofane. Or Herons. Well, there's a there's Perrin, and then there's the Heron sword. Perrin Fane. So already, Padden Fane. <laughs> <laughs> guys, <Shit>. we <laughs> guys we cover a lot of silly fantasy names. Okay, it's hard to keep track of them all. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, Luz Therim. I'm gonna go with Therim. You can just call him Luz or Louis. Oh, we found out that he was. An Ace back then, so male people could be Ace back 300,000, 3,000 years ago. What a progressive age we used to live in. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, can you remind me what happened to math in the Middle Ages? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, Non-white people had math just fine in the Middle Ages. That's true. That is good. I wonder why Europeans didn't. Math was sus. Um. <laughs> Some people say math is still sus. <laughs> not me. I like math. I'm just not super good at it. Back in the time that we follow the characters in, uh, we see Rand having a dream where Moraine dies based kill your boss. Um, <laughs> well, he doesn't kill her. In his dream, he does. But, uh, Turns out he's talking to the Dark One for reals, even though it's a dream. It doesn't matter. He's like, I can talk to you anywhere. Yeah, I'm the Dark One. What the fuck? I can do whatever the fuck I want. Yeah. Love that. (laughs) I know exactly what Rand's going through because in his dream, he thinks he just woke up from a dream and he's talking to Moraine and then he thinks he wakes up again and he's talking to her and it's the exact same as his dream. I was waiting for him to do like a Simpsons like double dream inception thing. (laughs) It was almost like that, but they didn't drag it out for too long. And uh, I I could feel his pain, because sometimes that happens to me. I, I get stuck in a dream thinking I'm awake. It's it's no good. Yeah, and we certainly don't want his dreams to drag on. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so he and Moiraine uh, are making their way through the blight. It's pretty cringe. Um, is that what it is? They find their way to like 
An underground tower. It's a tower that goes down into the ground. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a real annihilation. <laughs> and at the bottom, there's some kind of symbol there on the floor. Yeah, some kind of yin-yang type of thing. Some sort of, you know, gray morality symbol in this light versus dark setting. Yeah. It's all makes, about balance, guys. Makes sense, I guess. Uh, so he has some flashbacks to a previous life as Luz, or Louie, as we're calling him. That loser. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I liked Louie. Louis. Oh, he Luz. was awesome. He was cool, yeah. He fought the Dark One in this place. How'd he do? How'd he go? How'd he do? <laughs> <laughs> Not so great. I think he ended up joining him or something. Maybe breaking the world a hey, little bit. that's what people believe happened. We don't really know. True. But, uh, so Rand's in another dream. The Dark One is trying to tempt him. What happens with that, Jack? Rand sees the desires of his hearts manifested as he believes he has just woken up in the two rivers with Egwene. That's right. As his wife, and they have a beautiful little baby. Yeah. And he's like, boy, this is everything I wanted. What a perfect and not coincidental thing to have happen just very suddenly out of nowhere. But he thinks it is sus. From the get-go, he's like, wait a minute, I was at the Eye of the World with the Dark One. Yeah. And Moiraine, not Egwene. That's right. <laughs> and uh, A different Ain. He's like, I know, I'll give you one of these tests, something that only you would know. And he asks her about a memory, and they recount this really nice time they had together. And he's like, and she answers perfectly, and he's like, oh, it really is you. And then everything freezes. And the dark one is like, see, it's really her. Isn't that hype? <laughs> I made that. You could have all this be real. You just have to want it bad enough. Yeah. Yeah. You know, imagine the job that you want, they say. Exactly. And uh, as we found out, Ran can channel. That's right. He's a man that can channel. He's a man. Exactly. Yes. Thank you. you beat me to it. Yes. And so Rand is like, oh, how do I make this world real? He's like, oh, Rand, it's so easy. It's so fucking easy. <laughs> Just look at the baby and want it as hard as you can. And it starts happening. Yeah, he starts channeling. It's white magic. And then suddenly it's dark, too. That's but, right. But we forgot to mention that earlier in the episode, before they got into the inverse tower or the hole in the ground moiraine gave rand a very important MacGuffin. that's right a saw on which is basically a man's magical channeling stone or statue it's a little lewd statue for men to use and um <laughs> and it was made with like the combined power of a hundred male acidi back in the day and so when you channel into it, it increases your strength, like, assumedly a hundredfold. Yeah. And so as he's channeling in this vision world, he realizes he's like, oh, this life is pretty perfect. But Egwene, 
she doesn't want this life. She That's wants right. to be an Ace Sedai. And this Egwene isn't that one, and so she's not perfect, right? The other Egwene is perfect. Yeah, kind of based Rand, actually. Yeah. Yeah, he said she would never want this life. I can't force this on her, basically. Yeah, which is awesome. He loves the real her more. And so he grabs the statue in the dream and in the physical world. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah, and then he blows the dark one away with a magical blast. I like the way you paused in between blows. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he does away with the dark one. Seemed too easy. It was pretty easy. That's right. After he blows his load all over the dark one. It leaves uh, splatters of a white substance all over the ground. Some kind of crystal. Yeah. That's right. And in the fight, the Dark One also stilled Moiraine, so she can't channel the One Source anymore. She's not too thrilled about that. Oh no, we de-weaponized the fascists. Aw. <laughs> well, just one. And Rand's like... I felt the madness creeping in. I can't go back with you. I have to be in exile now. Tell them I died. It's a good classic plot. Yeah. But meanwhile, the other characters are all back at Faldara trying to save the city from a siege by the fades and all the Trollocs. It's tens of thousands of troops. Not gonna lie, a lot of enemies at their gates. Or gate. They have, like, one gate. So what is everybody doing to help out, Jamie? Well, that's a great question. Egwene and Nenev, kind of hesitatingly on Nenev's part, decide to join Amalisa in defense of the city. Because Amalisa's like, you know what? Anybody who can channel any amount of magic, I need you. And four people show up. Yeah. But in between that, we also see Lan. He's determined to follow Moiraine. He's concerned that she has cut off their magical link and he wants to go after her to protect her. Meanwhile, the king gets suited up in his armor, not taking the like mythical armor of his forebearers, leaving that for his sister Amalisa while he goes to defend the wall with the other soldiers. And from there, things don't go so good for Faldara or its citizens. They are... Basically completely overwhelmed. The Trollocs use the classic World War Z method of throwing their bodies at the wall to create a ramp to climb up for the surviving ones and murder the king, based, of course. We were saying in the scene, as he was firing out a window in the wall, why is he using a crossbow when they're right in his face? He should use a spear and a Trolloc throws a spear right through his <laughs> chest. And like, oh, there he goes. <laughs> now he's got a spear to use. Yeah. Soon after that, tens of thousands of Trolloc troops start <laughs> making their way past the gate and heading towards the city. That's when Amalisa and the other four channelers, two of which are Nynaeve and Egwene, uh, get together to take them all out. How are five people going to do that, you ask? Well, with the source. And a whole lot of source. So, Amalisa connects through the one source to all the other women and starts channeling the source through them into herself. And 
It looks like Nynaeve and Egwene have extra source channels coming through them. They're all sourced up. They're goaded with the source. <laughs> uh, and they take them all out with some crazy world-ending level magic uh, with lightning just annihilating all the troops. And most of the people who are casting get completely obliterated in like the process of channeling this magic. Yeah. They're basically holding on to lightning. I would have loved to have seen a one-liner in this scene where like a random Trolloc suddenly has the ability to talk. And while they're channeling, getting ready for the spell, he's just like, who do you think you are? And she's just like, Amelisa. <laughs> God damn it. And then it. the spell explodes. But uh, she can't control after they've annihilated the entire Trolloc army with this one spell. It is, is meaty. Pretty crazy. Yeah. Uh, nobody really channels that type of source usually. Uh, she can't control it. And it starts burning them all out from the inside out. Even herself. And she's like, I can see everything. And then she dies. <laughs> <laughs> Nineveh is like basically almost killed. Like her eyes burn out. She, she tries to sacrifice herself to save Egwene and put her power into Egwene. Egwene survives, is able to tap into the source enough to heal Nynaeve, which she couldn't do before. And so they're both okay, and it's all good. Yeah, and you know what? The two characters who have mattered throughout the series are still here. Nothing but a bit of delicious suffering. <laughs> While this is going on, Perrin and some of the king's guards are headed into the throne room to uncover a an ancient relic that is supposed to call the heroes of the past to this time, and they're not going to use it to defend the city. Apparently only the dragon can call can use it. That's right. But who shows up? But our old buddy Pat and Fane. With two fades in tow. And he basically just murders the king's guard, grabs the casket that has the ancient relic in it, says to Perrin, Hey, what are you gonna do, huh, buddy? And walks out with the fades and the relics, and you know what? I can't even be mad at him. Pat and Fane is so cool. Yeah. He's pretty great. Yeah, I like when he sells lanterns. That's true, yeah. He's like, you think that I just came to your shitty little village to sell lanterns? No. A city with, or a town even, with five dragons? That's an important place. You're I know what the fuck is going on. You're not all going to turn to the light. Some of you are going to be dark. There has to be balance. Maybe there won't even be balance. Maybe you'll all be dark. I like how he presents the idea of balance and it's like, or maybe it'll just be evil. That'll be even better. <laughs> so yeah, that's where we kind of end it. Yep. Things are <laughs> both looking good and not so good for our heroes as we set off into our wait for season two. But anyways, that's what happened in the last episode. We should probably head into the delve. Welcome to the Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of the final episode of Season 1 of The Wheel of Time, The Eye of the World. So guys, unlike our last show, we kind of got a real ending here. I know. What an impressive change we've had from Warrior Nun. How novel. Thank God. 
Ironically. (laughs) (laughs) Thank the dragon. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, we wrap up some arcs. We leave it open-ended for the next season. Of course, we are watching a show that is based on a very long series of books. I don't even know which books this first season has covered, but we actually got like a pretty satisfying conclusion with some interesting plot threads that will take us in the season two. Yeah, I mean, they even tried to show Matt a little bit when Pat and Fane was talking about like some of them turning to the dark. It showed a clip of Matt going into Tar Valon and looking kind of like super sick and troubled and like kind of devious. Yeah, I can't wait to see my favorite actor from this series, the guy who plays Matt, returning to that iconic role next season. Oh, wait. <laughs> hmm. But yeah, this episode was heavily themed in war and sacrifice. That's right. I think the king really showed that off. Yes, I would say so. Yeah. He knows that he's going into a fool's war. He is just buying time for the people to escape. So, I mean, of course, we have a classic theme that we've talked about in multiple episodes of this glorified vision of what a ruler is supposed to be like. You a know, noble king. An actually a noble king who will put his own life on the line or a ruler of any kind who will put their life on the line to protect their people because they are responsible for them. And of course, this is never how it works in history. Very, very rarely. But the king of Faldara does go to the front line with his soldiers and buys the citizenry time to escape. He's also another stand-in for Aragorn, just like Lan. Yeah. We kind of get two Aragorns for the price of one. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. And it's very similar to the Lord of the Rings, too, where they're trying to, like, protect the citizenry and just give people time to... Like, in the Lord of the Rings, the Return of the King, when they're attacking the gate, they're just trying to distract Sauron to give Frodo time to destroy the ring. Yeah. So here they're trying to, like, get the, let their messengers have time to go warn other people about the Dark One Awakening. It's interesting because they think it's the final battle like at the end of their age. But Moiraine points out that it was just the first of many. That's right. They thought it was going to be a conclusion, but uh uh-oh, things are just getting heated up. Yeah, they thought it was the end, but it was the beginning. (laughs) Thank you, Jack. (laughs) Everybody kind of has to sacrifice something in this episode. I was going to say, Rand has this opportunity to have an idyllic life, which is what he's wanted the whole time. From season one, he said all he wanted was to just live peacefully and have a farm and a family with Egwene. And he is given the temptation to be able to have that, but he knows that it is a false life if he took it. So listeners may know, and you guys do too, that I usually don't like the sacrifice symbolism. I usually think it is not utilized well in media and uh, in a way that shows that it would reinforce like a healthy relationship. Yes. <laughs> um, but with Rand, I, I actually liked his sacrifice. He was sacrificing the dream he wanted because he knew that it would make 
the person he loved miserable. Yeah, I thought that was really good, too. I, I, I've i really turned around on Ray on this season. And part of it is just that the actor is so great. But I, I like that he is way more interested in Egwene's agency and ability to make her own decisions than, like, kind of the classic selfish protagonist who just wants what they want. And it doesn't matter what anybody else wants. They're just going to try to take it. Yeah, I mean, if you remember in the last episode, they talked and he said he would go to Tarvalon with her and be one of her, be her warder. Yeah, which is basically sacrificing his own dream. And that's how bad he wants to be with her. Well, her dream is changing, too. She wanted to be a wisdom and stay in the two rivers. And she knows she can't do that either. So she's also changing what she wanted to do with her life. They're both kind of making sacrifices, but they're going to gain community and be able to stay with each other through that. Yeah, it's true. And Rand also made another sacrifice in this episode. He leaves. I know. And it's because uh, after he defeats the Dark One at the fir- at this the first yeah. battle, when they thought it was the last. <laughs> and when the Dark One is not fully powered, it seems. Yeah, he was in a weakened state. Yes. He's talking to Moiraine. He's like, is it true that men who channel get consumed by madness and eventually just kill all the people they love? And Moiraine is just like, yeah, it's all, it's definitely <laughs> true. And so uh, Rand is like, well, obviously I don't want to kill all my friends, so I'm going to leave. <laughs> and she lets him for now, like, remember in the past when Matt didn't follow them, she didn't trust him. And so she sent her red sisters after him. Yeah, that's true. Which we still have not seen resolved yet. Seems like maybe they haven't found him yet because we saw him wandering around the city. Yeah. But with Rand, she seems to let him go. I think she trusts Rand's instincts and intuitions and knows, she knows why he's doing what he's doing. She, Matt was keeping things from them. Rand is being honest. But. By staying with people, couldn't he get help? Well, but then you wouldn't have a story. Potentially, yes. And it's also wild to assume Moiraine is just going to let you go. When you just talked about how you're going to go insane and you can channel, right? Yeah, I mean, he did just kill the Dark or defeat the Dark One initially. So maybe she's thinking he turned towards the good side? I don't know. Well, Maybe. There, there's another consideration, too. Moiraine has been stripped of her powers. She might not be able to stop Rand if she wanted to. Yeah, it's true. I was considering that. And Rand might just be giving himself a head start, and he thinks they're going to come after him. And he's probably right. Yeah. I'm wondering if Moiraine's being, uh, like, status of being stilled is going to stick. I mean, for at least part of a season. The Dark One took her power, but then he was disbanded, or like his, he's like in a spiritual form almost. And Rand defeated him in that form. So it's possible that some of that power went back into her and she just didn't feel it yet because it's so faint. I don't know. I kind of feel like it's not going to be permanent for her. Yeah, we don't know how stilling works. I feel the white crystalline substance that was left behind from the massive casting might have some be like some kind of crystallized source. 
Could be. Yeah, she was cradling it when Lan found her. It's true. And they were talking somehow about how it can't be made or something, or how there was like a finite amount and it was gone. Something like that. Yeah, Only so and, much source rock. Yeah. And uh, they hadn't seen it for a while or something. A long time. Yeah. Mm. It's a very rare substance. And there's like quite a bit of it there, like a whole node. Vein. Yeah. Yeah, vein. And uh, so that might be able to bring her power back. But also, Egwene and Nynaeve <laughs> uh, both have the power to heal. Oh, good point. I would not be surprised if you can unstill, ungentle someone. And the false dragon is still around. That's right. I think in the future he could be like a, mm, a hot asset. <laughs> yeah. Hot, hot ass. ass, all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we are low-gain stands, even if he is, you know. I mean, he's a complicated villain antagonist. Yeah. There's he, a lot of antagonists in this show. He sure kills a lot of people. <laughs> but, you know, another thing that comes up a lot in this episode and this season is this idea of remaking, right? The Dark One offers to help Rand remake the world in his vision. Right. And Rand identifies that as a bad idea, but... There's a lot of this kind of idea of the cyclical nature of time that the show has and how it's interesting that the Dark One wants to remake the world. Does that mean remaking it forever or just remaking it for this cycle? I think it's for the cycle. It seems like the cycle resets every 3,000 years. And when Rand goes to the same spot where he was as Luz, he remembers it. He sees part of that side of himself and like has a vision of being there the last time to fight the dark one i thought that was really interesting how he got to see that and he he had these vague feelings of like having been there in a dream yeah so in a way you know we can see rand as a character who kind of understands that even if he got what he wanted it wouldn't really matter and it wouldn't really last if he if it wasn't done kind of within the bounds of other people's agency and ability to make decisions. And he is resisting this power that he has. And it seems like it's hard to know if he's going to go out and keep channeling or if his plan is to just kind of disappear and like try to prevent the madness from creeping in for as long as he can. I think the best way he has to do that is to not channel. I'm sure, yeah. But, I mean, whether or not he's going to be able to do that when he has this power will be interesting to find out. The less that he does it, the longer he can stave off the madness, I think. But I kind of suspect that he might try to go find his people and where he's from because he's been getting these glimpses that the man who raised him is a foster father, not his biological father. And he seems to be curious about where he came from. Yeah, he definitely wants to... I think, explore his own heritage in probably the coming season. Another quick parallel I wanted to draw, because I love Loghain so very much, is uh, Moiraine has just been stilled. Yes. And he was gentled. Now, when we talked about him being gentled, it was like a massive violation. Definitely. Yeah, it's true. And she's just undergone... Something very similar. And her response to it is also similarly 
traumatized. Yeah. That's right. It's a part of herself that's been ripped out of her. So I hope they interact so much. Ooh, good call. They are going to have some interesting dialogue if they meet up again. Because Moiraine helped do the same thing to Loghain. And now she knows how it feels. That's a really good point, Jack. Lan comes in and asks Moiraine to uncloak their bond, and she says she can't. So their bond is basically cut off as well. Is it? I know magically it is, but I feel like they're still going to have a strong emotional connection. Mm -hmm. Definitely. But since Moiraine can't channel now soon, Nynaeve might need a warder. True, and we've already been establishing a little something-something between Nynaeve and Lan. Yeah, before Lan left to go after Moiraine, he says to Nynaeve, like, I'm going to hate whatever warder you take on because it's not me, but I'll love him for making you smile. <laughs> yeah, That's sweet. He definitely has a different way of going about his kind of affairs than Rand does. Maybe we should mix it up a little bit. Maybe a warder can be female. Maybe. Why not? I mean, it seems like in this world, uh, gender and sex roles are very hard-coded, but I like it. Yeah. You know, we uh, we were just talking about Moiraine, and Moiraine actually reveals an interesting little tidbit in this episode about how she discovered her magic. And it was basically also via a form of assault, where she was attacked by other casters just bombarding her with magic until her own source kind of came out and her own ability to channel manifested because she was in such a traumatic experience. And this is what happens with Rand too, but we kind of get this recurring theme throughout the season of harsh lessons or difficult means of acquiring knowledge or power. You know, nothing comes easily to a lot of our characters. Yeah. It seems like they're, ability to use magic is definitely hard fought <laughs> yeah i mean we saw it when perrin and Egwene were captured by the children of the light and perrin like started through stress calling out to the wolves and channeling his own magic like he needed a catalyst he needed to be in danger and to see somebody he cares deeply about in danger that's right and he didn't even do it when he was being tortured right it was when he was worried for Egwene. That's right. Which is great. I think Perrin has such a cool arc this season. Me too. He goes from being a vicious killer, <laughs> killed his wife. Oh, accidentally. God. Accidentally. Uh, and <laughs> then he finds the way of the leaf. Yeah. They tell him like, oh, you know, everyone has a past, but you, you know, you can decide who you are going forward. And then through Loyal, when they're in the city and the city is being sieged by the Trollocs at the end here, he's like, oh, pacifism is bullshit. There's like 20,000 Trollocs. Right. And everyone is going to die because of this violent act. Yeah, pacifism isn't going to stop it. Yeah, yeah. He's like, how do you follow the way of the leaf when you want to help people in this kind of situation, basically? Yeah. I assume that that is a question that he's going to be grappling with in the future, too. It's true. And Loyal is there to witness Perrin's crisis of leafness. <laughs> and 
He's like, I have often found that when you don't know what to do, you can always just ask, right? Yeah, I love that. But hey, speaking of Loyal, you know how we support our show every month? With our Loyal patrons. Oh, that's hype. (laughs) And if you want to be like one of our loyal patrons, you can go to patreon.com slash swords and satire. Join our patron community. Find a tier that fits your budget and support the show. We would really appreciate it. It helps us keep the torches lit here at Castle Satire. And you get cool perks like voting on a movie that we watch each month and bonus episodes whenever I have time to edit them. And additional media such as silly pictures, silly drawings, and who knows what else the heck we're going to slap on that sucker. Silly? Very serious. Thank you. Silly serious. Just like us. Oh, now back to the episode. And so they go and they find the builders trying to get the artifact out of the floor. And they're like, what can we do? And the builders are like, you can help dig. (laughs) Right. Hey, that is something to keep his mind busy while he is not sure what else he can do, which is actually usually a good technique. It doesn't solve your problems. But at least it, like, lets you have some time to get some perspective. Right. But then, of course, that is not the last crisis of Perrin. Because as he's digging, things are going well. Pat and Fane. That's right. They come in. They kill everyone, including Loyal. Oh, Which is so sad. It is very sad because Loyal is fantastic. Yeah, one of the best characters. Fan too, favorite. Too strong an agent of the light. Because Pat and Fane had to kill him. And (laughs) Perrin in this scene grabs a big battle axe like he's going to fight them. That's right. And Pat and Fane is like, see how easy it is to make you turn to the dark side? Ooh, yeah, Yeah. that's dirty. And also, I mean, he's holding an axe, the weapon he used when he accidentally killed wife. Lyriel? I don't know. Layla. So even the fact that he is willing to wield this weapon in the first place is showing how his arc has been very challenging for him up to this point. Yeah, it's really good. And we mentioned it a little bit earlier, but Patton Fane mentions a little bit about the dragon and about how when it comes to the end of the world, Mm. the focal point is not always just the dragon. But it can be multiple people. He's like, sometimes there's one dragon, sometimes there's two. Sometimes there are just multiple people who are critical to it. And this time there are five individuals that fit that description. Yeah. And you're all like connected through the weave. That's right. And I think he's saying that there isn't a guarantee that they're all dragons. Right. But that they are all critical revolving around the dragon. Yeah. And He's like, even if we don't get the dragon on the dark side, we can get some of you. Yeah. And then that's when, you know, Perrin, uh, shortly after that, picks up the axe. And he, Pat and Fane is like, see, it's so easy. <laughs> and then, <laughs> God, he's good at being bad. That's probably why they don't hurt him either, because he's important to the weave and potentially the dark one. Good point. All right, guys, we've said a lot about season one. We should probably wrap it up and do our final thoughts for The Wheel of Time. 
All right. We've covered the first season of The Wheel of Time. We've had a good time doing it. Where are you guys at? How are you feeling about the season as a whole, where it's going, and how many wheels would you rate season one? I start out immediately on a foot of frustration because of Warrior Nun. I already <laughs> I already want to rate the show higher just because it has an ending. Right. What kind of what kind of standard is that? That seems like a low bar. Warrior Nun is vicious, violent against the world. <laughs> it's just true. wait till we cover season two. I oh. I can't wait. It better be good. Uh or else. <laughs> and uh there will be repercussions. <laughs> yes. There will be tears. Yes, that's right. <laughs> this show has a good ending point. A lot of the characters, there are a lot of characters. Yes. And they all get good arcs as far as I'm concerned. It was hard to develop that many characters. They did a good job. Agreed. The show starts out really rough. Because they try to snag you, and they try too hard, I feel like. They try to fit in too much at once. The pacing is really bad. The story is really confusing. And the characters are kind of two-dimensional, right? But by the end of the show, everyone feels so flushed out. The plot's pretty good. The setting is getting cooler and cooler. I'm actually invested in it, and I'm looking forward to season two. Especially what they're going to do with Matt. And considering all of that, I might have to give this show 7 out of 10 wheels. Not bad. I find it very enjoyable, but a show that takes like 3 or 4 episodes out of what, 8? Yes. You, It's like 2 thirds of the show, or no, 1 third of the show to get through before it gets good. I can't really normally recommend that to people. Oh, wow. So... If you think you can power through it, go for it. But uh, I like it a lot, and I'm looking forward to more of it. So, 7 out of 10. Not bad. I appreciated how this show was an adaptation of the source material rather than a faithful recreation. Nice. The first two episodes were more of a recreation, and then after that, they started to deviate and tell their own story a little bit, and modernize the social dynamics to fit for a modern audience. That was definitely a positive. And to be at least a bit more inclusive uh, in the representation of the actors and characters. Love that. Which made it more interesting and compelling. And yeah, the story just got more interesting the more they decided to kind of make it their own and i appreciated that at first i was a little worried i was like oh god how are we gonna get through this but then it got really good at least good enough to enjoy when i watched it yeah and even kind of look forward to it yeah Mm -hmm. and um, sometimes that's the bar (laughs) i appreciate what the actors went through to like go through all the physical stuff and like deal with all these harsh conditions and then like just the way the people like leaned into trying to recreate the motions for the magic. At first it was awkward, but then <laughs> it seemed like they got the flow of it. And I thought they did pretty well in the l- later half. It's always awkward, but in the end it's fun awkward. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I think I'll also give it seven out of 10 wheels. Not bad. Um. And I do recommend that you watch it just 
you know, understand the first two episodes are a little wooden, but it gets really good after that. So it's worth it. That's fair. You know, for me, I didn't have the same hesitation about the show that you guys did in the beginning. And I was kind of grabbed from part one. I mean, I didn't feel uh, it's two parts, right? I felt like it was a lot and it was complex and it was maybe a little overwhelming at the beginning, but I felt invested pretty much from the beginning. I liked the characters. I liked how they were introducing the characters. You know, I mean, it becomes painful to compare everything to the Lord of the Rings, but the Fellowship of the Rings doesn't necessarily introduce you to all the Fellowship very well. No. You kind of just meet Legolas and Gimli and Boromir, and you get, like, little smidgens, but it's, like, through watching all the movies on repeated watches that you're like oh i know what gimli's like i know what legolas is like this show i feel like the characters are actually really well established from the beginning and i appreciate that and i think that the episodic nature you know it can be a double-edged sword i mean obviously i don't want like a five-hour movie like i wouldn't be or it'd be even more than that it'd be like an eight-hour movie so episodic is the way to go for sure there were some episodes that stumbled for me some of the ones that jumped around between characters a lot i didn't super love but i got what they were doing and i appreciated the way that they were telling the story of five characters plus more really six or seven characters and you include moiraine and lan and then a lot of side characters who have rich lives and have complex dynamics. And we jump around to interesting, like, world building in the past. And we got, like, Rand's birth or this flashback to the previous dragon. Or when we met the Tamalin seat for the first time in her fishing village. That's awesome. The yeah. Char- yeah. The character building actually works really well, I feel like. And like I said, even if they stumble a few times, overall, on a whole... I think that they accomplished what they set out to do. And I'm really glad that not only are we getting season two, but they've already confirmed that season three is happening. So clearly they are investing in this and we're not getting these things like we get with some shows where like warrior nun falls off in the middle of nowhere or shows that we might like and want to talk about or that we wanted to cover. We know aren't getting more seasons and they aren't finishing stories. Yeah, when I see a production company investing in a show, it makes me feel more invested in giving it my time. Exactly. And I don't like to support necessarily the company that is producing this show, but they are putting out good fantasy media. Yeah. And this gives me a lot less hesitation about covering the Rings of Power in a few weeks here, because... I'm going to assume that they are putting their resources into that. So credit where credit's due. They are investing in fantasy when a lot of other companies are just sort of misfiring by not committing to the fans. Yeah. Now if they do a Narnia show, they're just going to get all three of them. (laughs) I think that might be happening. But I'm not sure who's... I think it might be Disney who's making it. Looking forward to it. This is also kind of a Narnia show, just with the horn that calls the ancient heroes. (laughs) Fair. Literally the plot of Prince Caspian also. There you go. But anyways, I'm going to give season one an eight out of ten wheels. I really enjoyed it, and I really want to see where they're going next. And since I'm not familiar with the original source material of the books, to me it's all just a wild ride. Yeah, that's fair. 
But anyways, it's probably time for us to wrap up here at Swords and Satire. As always, we hope you enjoyed listening. And if you did, you can follow us on social media at Swords and Satire on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to keep up with the show, get in touch with us, and see what we're doing next. And next week, you can tune in to hear us talking about this new movie that's dropping called The Princess. That's right. We're kicking off Ungovernable Women Movie Month. Yeah, which we love. And we're really looking forward to watching this princess kick some ass. (laughs) Always. Yeah, fight the power. And like we mentioned earlier, thanks to all of our patrons. They help support the show. But another great way you can support the show without spending a dime is by telling your friends and family about the show. Spread the word. It helps us out a lot. And... If you all watch the media that we watch together and listen to the episode together, what better way is there to enjoy your favorite media than with your favorite people? That's right. That's what we do. Believe me, it's a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Well, until next time. Hail Hail Crom. Crom!